So in one sense, we will know when we have achieved the promised land. The promised land is where any person who has a legitimate legal problem requiring assistance, um, needs to have assistance, can get that assistance. And if they're not getting it through a legal aid society and they're not getting it through volunteer pro bono, we have to find new ways through technology, I believe, to get them that assistance. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today, we're continuing our Access to Justice Week on what is the 50th episode of Daily Matters. And today, our very special guest is Hank Greenberg, who just completed his term as president of the New York State Bar Association, the NISBA. Hank, thanks for coming on the show, and thank you for all the work you're doing in New York. Thank you, Jack. It's a privilege to be here. So, Hank, I, I know there's a a ton on all of our minds right now. Uh, what are you thinking about most right now? Well, all we have to do is turn on the television set or uh, go online and look at a news outlet and uh, the images of the protests um, and, and the brutal murder of um, uh, George Floyd. That's, I think, on, on all Americans' minds and all lovers of justice. Uh, and wanting to see justice done in that case, and uh, listening empathetically, thoughtfully to the protests and the protesters, the justifiable expression of rage um, at the seemingly um, continuous stream of videos, equally ghastly and, brusely, uh, and gruesome, um, with racially motivated violence, um, and um, making sure that our justice system is up to the challenge of seeing that justice is done, and also um, making sure that we make the necessary reforms so that in the future, these images and these kinds of protests are not necessary. Hank, you mentioned the killing of George Floyd and the unrest and protests that have ensued, and, and this has driven just in the last week uh, a dramatic shift in the, the conversation around around justice, around criminal justice reform, and, and rightfully so. You've spent your entire career inside the justice system. From your perspective, what does it mean to have these things still happening in the year 2020? And how do we start driving some of the systemic change that we need to see in the, the long term? Well, it's at once heartbreaking, and it, it makes one understandably upset, even angry. Um, Early in my career, I was a federal prosecutor and assistant U.S. attorney, um, and remember very well the Rodney King episode. And uh, that's decades ago. Uh, that's not yesterday. Uh, that's more than 20 years ago. And here we are just in the space of the last four months and only a few weeks before the world seeing the, the, the brutal murder of uh, Mr. Floyd, we saw the shooting of um, an innocent African-American man just simply taking a jog. So uh, in, in, in New York, um, we saw on video um, in Staten Island, the show call that led to the death of uh, Eric Garner, surrounded by numerous officers who did nothing to stop it. 
So I have, in my own experience and background, not just working in the justice system, but I was a federal prosecutor. I worked in the New York State Attorney General's office. I was counsel to then uh, Attorney General Andrew Cuomo. I was his counsel. So for those of us lovers of justice and believers that the foundation of our society is the rule of law, we are at DEFCON 5. Um, this right. is a full-blown rule of law, not only a challenge, but a crisis. And uh, the need for reform has long since passed, but now we're well past simply talking about it. Now we need policymakers, we need Congress, we need state legislators, we need bar associations, we need thought leaders to focus like a laser beam on developing the reforms that are necessary so we eradicate systemic racism from law enforcement uh, and we never have to deal with this. I think what you're hearing from the protests and what we're seeing in the protests, and it's a trite way of looking at it, but yes, we've reached a tipping point. Uh, in America, our society has gotten to the point where we are saying, no, we will not accept this any longer. And those voices need to be heard. They need to be heard immediately. We're past the time to having a debate about this. It is clear that we have a profound and systemic problem in law enforcement. This isn't simply a case of a few rotten apples. These videos show other law enforcement officers who were not directly involved by laying hands, perhaps, on a person who was maimed or injured, but sitting back and doing nothing and saying nothing. Right. And that's in the, so many of these videos. That has to stop. We need to put a halt to that. Well, Hank, on a recent post on the New York State Bar Association website, you wrote an excellent article. You quote the famed judge, Learned Hand, who said, thou shalt not ration justice. You commented in the article that truer words in the law may have never been spoken. Can, can you tell us a little bit more what you, what you mean by that and what that, that quote means to you? Sure. Uh, so the piece that you're refer referring to, Jack, that was, that was issued pre-COVID-19. And in New York and around the country, um, we have long known we've had a um, justice, access to justice crisis. We refer to it as a access to justice or justice gap. Today, in light of COVID-19, we have a access to justice, justice Grand Canyon. The simple truth is, the undeniable fact is, that for the poor, the working poor, and even the middle class, being able to speak with a lawyer, consult with a lawyer, and obtain legal advice is difficult and in many cases impossible. We have legal aid societies in New York and across the country that do extraordinary work. Institutional legal service providers do extraordinary work. But before COVID-19, their resources were strained to the limit. And while lawyers in New York and across the country do extraordinary pro bono, um, and volunteerism and in COVID-19 in New York, and we can, I hope we get to talk about it a little bit, thanks in large measure to your assistance, Jack. We're seeing lawyers volunteering in great numbers, but institutional legal service providers in pro bono alone wasn't getting it done before COVID-19, and now can't possibly be expected to meet the justice needs. So, there's a, I think, acute appreciation of that now within the organized bar. At the last meeting of the American Bar Association in Austin, Texas, 
There was a resolution that I proudly was able to speak in favor of on behalf of the New York State Bar Association, calling for states, the individual laboratories of experimentation, and regulators across the nation to start exploring and inventing and thinking about innovative ways to deal with the justice gap. Because the reality is, we're moving backwards. There is less justice being dispensed to a growing number of Americans. That problem needs to be addressed. And if we see nothing from these protests, right, and these protests are expressing anger about the, among other things, the justice system's perceived failure to correct systemic problems. So it behooves the legal profession, it behooves all of society, but most especially lawyers, right, it seems to me, right now to be aggressive advocates for addressing the access to justice crisis. Hank, in this, just to reiterate some of the statistics you mentioned in that call, and you mentioned that the United States ranks 103rd out of 126 countries in the accessibility and affordability of civil legal services. So near the bottom of the list, in the, the lower quartile, poor and most middle income Americans receive inadequate or no legal assistance when facing civil legal challenges. Uh, you pointed out a study of 10 major urban areas revealed that an estimated 76% of civil matters had at least one self-represented party. Uh, and the access to justice crisis is even more dire in rural communities um, with fewer young lawyers choosing to locate themselves in those jurisdictions. Uh, when you when you look at this and, you know, the the perception is certainly the, the reality. There There's this massive access to justice gap, the the disparity in this this Grand Canyon that you pointed out that's forming uh, seems to be almost certainly destined to become worse with COVID-19 and the, the tsunami of legal issues we're going to see related to COVID-19. Um, it can it can feel you know almost hopeless at at times, and and yet I, I think you've got uh, an optimistic perspective and and a plan for for what some of the things that. You can do New York, that the New York State Bar Association can do, that the um, individual lawyers can do. I'm wondering if you can share what some of your your calls to action might be, both to lawyers that are, are listening to this podcast and maybe looking for what can they do to help drive this reform and drive drive the change that needs to happen, as well as uh, bar leaders and, and judges that, that may be listening and, and thinking about how can we reform broader aspects of the system to improve access to justice? Well, rule number one in solving a problem is knowing you have one. And uh, one reason why I'm optimistic is everybody knows we have a problem. Every thought leader and significant policymaker within the world of uh, justice and the justice system understands that the access to justice crisis is upon us and it is metastasizing. Uh, you've said it really well, better than I can, Jack, just in terms of what COVID-19 has done about accelerating and being an accelerant to certain trends and tendencies within right. the legal profession. And with respect to the justice crisis, COVID-19 is more than an accelerant. It's, the tinder was there, and now it set it on fire, because we are already seeing, for example, in New York, where our courts were just in the past couple of weeks reopened for new lawsuits. They were already open uh, virtually, 
um, addressing pending cases, but um, the spigot was opened and new lawsuits were allowed to be filed electronically. And as we knew, the expected surge is upon us. And in a couple of areas, there are currently moratoriums and pauses, for example, landlord-tenant proceedings, eviction proceedings in New York. Um, our governor has imposed a moratorium on those proceedings until the end of the summer. But we know with Depression-era levels of unemployment and millions of New Yorkers, tens of millions of Americans without any work, their ability to pay rent is growing. Landlords need to keep the lights on. They have to find ways to be funded. I'm just making that point to say that there is going to be an explosion in those kinds of proceedings and debtor-creditor claims and all sorts of things that COVID-19 has created. So the crisis is here. We know it's here. I think one of the ways we need to begin to focus on how we're going to solve the problem is being willing, and you'll forgive me, again, this may sound trite, but it's never been more true. We need to think out of the box. Right. Mm -hmm. to open our minds to creative approaches and solutions that might otherwise have been unthinkable pre-COVID-19. We need to think about them now. Technology is going to play a huge role, a tremendously important role, I think, and the potential for it um, to play a, a, a positive role in the access to justice area is enormous. And uh, I think thought leaders, I think policymakers, I think leaders of court systems, I know this is happening in New York, needs to happen across the country, are assembling groups and task forces, and the best and the brightest, that would include you, Jack, people who can look at the future and figure out how we get there rapidly, to start to come up with solutions in terms of technology, um, in terms of court structures, in, in terms of how... Um, how the profession has historically thought about various issues. We really have to open up our minds to new solutions and approaches. So Hank, your, your comments, I think, point out that COVID-19 is really a bit of a double-edged sword when we think about its impact on the, the legal system and some of the ways we might be able to, on one hand, we'll be facing unprecedented levels of legal demand and uh, it, it's creating a whole new ecosystem of legal issues that need solved. But at the other time, it feels like it's forced change that would have taken otherwise, I, I think, you know, 10 or 20 years to happen or, or maybe wouldn't have happened at all. We, we see the kinds of rapid adaptation, for example, that the courts have made to embracing tools like Zoom and, and running you know, a, a trial on on a Zoom call, having jury selection processes go through uh, successfully in a in a Zoom call. These these things that maybe without the help of technology would have never happened. Can can you comment maybe on what you're seeing on the ground? Some of the the immediate impacts that uh, COVID nineteen has has had in terms of the technology pivots that that you're seeing in the industry and some of the ways that might in a small way contribute, or maybe a big way contribute to improving access to justice? Yeah, uh, well, uh, what you just described, that phenomena um, in New York has played out almost exactly as you described it. Um, our courts went, our, our state courts went from a system where we had e-filing, um, we had sort of crossed that bridge uh, a few years ago, uh, like the federal courts, um, but never, 
never did anyone think of our state court system as a virtual court system. Um, the idea of virtual arraignments, virtual court conferences, all of that uh, was not part of the day-to-day -day work of judges and lawyers in New York State and our state courts. Overnight, um, led magnificently by our chief judge and our chief administrative judge, Janet e. Fiore and Larry Marks, they transformed overnight a court system that had no real acquaintanceship with technology apart from e-filing and managed to keep the courts open during the crisis. Pending cases were being addressed through virtual court conferences, conference calls, and all of that. Um, and they were able to do it with a technological infrastructure that really wasn't well suited for that. It wasn't built to deal with that. Uh, but through sheer force of will and creativity, they managed to do it. And now here we are with a virtual court system. We wouldn't confuse it. I don't think anyone would confuse it for technologically enhanced courtrooms, widespread, or is it done with the rapidity and the efficiency um, that it could and should be. Um, so we have seen that in New York. Uh, technology kept our courts open. Without it, our justice system would have come to a screeching halt. In New York, we would have gone without the ability to do virtual court proceedings. We would have closed the courts down for three months. New York right. State is the epicenter of COVID-19. Statewide, everyone was cloistered in their homes. Right? So you can't have, if you think about it, in a way, New York State Bar Association is, is sort of went through the same experience. Uh, but just talking about the state, if we didn't have the ability to move to a virtual platform, we would have had a criminal justice system that would have come to a close for three months. Police would have been you know, doing law enforcement things two months ago or a month ago or three months ago that would have been shut down. Emergency family court proceedings wouldn't have been possible. Uh, domestic uh, violence cases couldn't have been addressed by the justice system. So your point is exactly right. Before COVID-19, who knows how long it would have been to sort of get to a place where people understood they had to communicate virtually, right? Years and years. Um, but because of COVID-19, literally overnight, New York's justice system went from a physical, actual platform to a virtual platform, and that is all to the good. And now I think the challenge for policymakers in New York and across the nation is to take these experiences and the giant leaps they have made in a short time to a new normal and leverage them to get it to the next level. And when you're looking beyond, we're already seeing in some jurisdictions a small return, a phased return to normal. What is your feeling around how some of these these changes, you know, with the courts, especially in terms of embracing some of these new technologies, how much of this do you think will will last beyond the pandemic? Have we seen a temporary measure put in place for in response to an emergency, or have we seen a, a truly a foundational shift in thinking about, about again, the, the way that Richard Susskind frames it, I think is great that, that the courts are a service, not a place. Is that change permanent? Um, well, I do think there are permanent changes, for sure. Um, and as virtual communications becomes a societal norm, and I think COVID-19 will have that effect, 
necessarily the law is a mirror of society. Society makes those changes, the law is gonna make those changes. I fully expect that uses of technology, many of them that we see now will continue. Don't get me wrong, when we can all sort of return to our normal lives, um, history sort of teaches us people are going to run all over each other to sort of get back to that life. I am not in the camp of people that say, oh no, the world has totally changed. We won't be going to ball games. We won't be going to movie theaters. We won't be going to restaurants. My opinion, completely untrue. The Spanish flu of 1918 and 1919, which was even more devastating. 50 million people died around the world. Right. More than a half million Americans died. More than 200,000 New Yorkers died because of the Spanish flu, which kicked in in the winter of uh, 1918, a second wave in 1919. By 1920, the Roaring Twenties began. Right. Uh, and people put that tragedy in the rearview mirror. So I do think in many ways, people are desperate to return to old byways and pathways and ways of doing things. But I do think virtual communications will and is now a societal norm. That's gonna be reflected in the law. I do believe courts who are themselves are struggling for resources every year during budget cycles now see their enormous efficiencies, right? So in addition to it being the smart thing to do, the right thing to do, um, the thing that stands in my judgment, the best hope of really making a difference on access to justice. In addition to that, people are recognizing sort of um, um, laying a permanent foundation from this experience is the smart thing to do. It's cheaper, it's quicker, it's more efficient, it can enhance justice. So I'm very optimistic that we're gonna build on many of these changes. It feels like our approach to designing what the future looks like is now informed by an understanding of what can actually work and, and the ways that we can weave technology in to help, help improve access to justice. So that leaves me, uh, like you, I think, optimistic that we can start making steps in the, in the right direction. And maybe in that vein, Hank, I'd love to dig into um, this, this project that, that Cleo had the privilege of collaborating on with, with NISBA along with Paladin, which was uh, a really interesting opportunity to, to weave technology and a, a new way of connecting uh, people that need legal representation amidst the COVID-19 crisis with volunteer lawyers that are willing to, uh, to help them out. And I'll, I'll point out that, that you and uh, me and, and Kristen Sande from, from Paladin uh, were on Bob Ambrosi's Law Next podcast talking about this uh, for close to an hour a week or two ago. So check out that episode of Bob Ambrosi's podcast for uh, the, the most in-depth story if you're listening to this, but if you can kind of give us the, the, the capsule overview of that, that project, Hank, I think it's actually a really interesting example of a bar association innovating uh, in a way that uh, was certainly historic for the New York State Bar Association, and I, I believe worldwide. I, I believe so too. Um, well, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, in New York on March 22 at 8 p.m., uh, pursuant to our governor's executive order, we were all cloistered in our homes. Um, the New York State Bar Association, thankfully, as we say, built a virtual bar center that went live just a few weeks before COVID-19, thank goodness, 
allowed us to move to a virtual platform very quickly. Um, and we then perceived in late March that we were going to have this, this extraordinary unprecedented demand in legal services disproportionately impacting the poor and minorities when COVID-19 passed. So we announced working in partnership with our state court system that we would be building out a statewide pro bono network uh, to help meet the demand, knowing that legal aid societies alone couldn't get it done. Uh, and that was our plan, to work on that, to build that out. We thought, uh, we didn't hope that it would be the case, but we thought we would be sort of um, um, shut down um, for at least a few months. Um, and that would give us the chance to build out the network. And a couple of weeks into that process, we received a call from Governor Cuomo's office saying, can you help us out? We heard, and they had heard, that we were building this pro bono network. And they were experiencing um, a crisis of their own, the whole state was, the whole nation was, with respect to unemployment. Um, because in New York, which is so heavily dependent on the hospitality industry, especially the city of New York, hotels closed, theaters closed, all of that closed, we had 1.5 million New Yorkers. By now, I think it's over 2 million New Yorkers who filed for unemployment insurance benefits. So we had depression-era levels of unemployment. The state agency that administers uh, our unemployment insurance program, the New York State Department of Labor, was overwhelmed. Absolute, from a technological point of view, overwhelmed. Their website crashed, their toll-free number had waiting, uh, people had to wait for four, five, six hours to have someone answer a call or return a call. And the governor's office came to us because for those people whose claims were denied, there's evidence that shows people who were represented by counsel in the appeal process fare much better than those who don't. And they asked us if we could stand up a pro bono network of volunteers across the state that could assist people whose claims were denied so that they could get legal assistance and uh, hopefully they could get a decision reversed and get unemployment insurance benefits. So the governor's office asked us this, uh, and, and the ask was from a logistical point of view, daunting, just daunting. We didn't know what the ultimate demand would be for those kind of legal services. Getting a few volunteers, that's easy, but getting them from Niagara Falls to Montauk, New York is a vast state, a diverse state in every way, including geographically. Um, and we knew enough to know that the only way we were gonna pull this off was through technology. And so we reached out to you, Jack, um, and your extraordinary team, um, and begged, please help. Please help us build a system that can do this. We knew you could do it. We did, and that we knew, and give us credit for that, we didn't know how to build it out. And our governor was dealing in a real-time crisis with people dealing with suffering and despair in real time. So we needed to do this quickly. Um, so you not only mobilized your team, uh, uh, and I never saw that many smart engineers working that lar long and hard in that concentrated period of time to create an innovative website that would allow two things to happen. One, it would allow us to build out the volunteer core of lawyers 
figure out where they are, figure out what their knowledge base was, figure out what they were smart about and what they knew and what they didn't. Stand up a uh, training modules for those lawyers that wanted to volunteer in the unemployment insurance space, didn't have any experience to train them. Uh, and then have clients people who would be eligible for these services, couldn't otherwise afford a lawyer, to contact us uh, through the website and allow us to match client with lawyer and do it overnight and do it across the state with an unknowable volume of potential requests. And uh, Jack, thanks to you and um, internally in your debt, you also um, uh, uh, brought in Paladin which in its own right has, um, has previously constructed, I think, an innovative model for pro bono legal services and organizing lawyers and volunteers. You seamlessly married their technology with this new website that you designed. And I could not be prouder or more grateful to you at how well it has worked, miraculously well. In the blink of an eye, we had 800 volunteer lawyers from across the state. We trained over 1,500 lawyers to be able to provide these services. And hundreds and hundreds of people have come to us asking for assistance, and we've been matching them. And what you said, Jack, couldn't be more right. That, I believe, is exhibit A in its own way. That is the glimpse into the future, and the future is now. This is how we're going to crack the access to justice riddle through technologies like the one you designed. And at the New York State Bar Association, that template that you created for unemployment insurance just in the last two weeks was used to build out a new capacity, um, which was for people who were direct victims of COVID-19 and died and had families who had estates, however small, and needed to administer wills in our surrogate courts in New York you did it again, Jack. We built a new module on the website for that category of pro bono assistance. And now that we've done these two, um, we expect to be rolling out in the weeks to come different modules using through technology, ability to recruit lawyers, ability to train lawyers, ability to have through a portal, people who need the service come to us, and then the ability to match them, do it seamlessly, do it in real time, Jack. And thanks to you and with the assistance of Paladin, you did it. And it's, yeah. it's so great. To know well. It was such a exciting and invigorating project for my team and for, for me to work on, Hank. So uh, I, I know you expressed gratitude and thank you for that. But, but similarly, uh, thank you for inviting us into that opportunity uh, because it was, I, I think, a really, a really exciting project to get engaged with and one that had real impact in terms of creating access to justice. And I feel like we, we stumbled almost accidentally on a model here that is, as you pointed out, a template for so many other use cases where we're trying to connect people in need with lawyers that can help assist them. And again, all we need to look at is the world justice project data that that 77% of people that have legal issues do not see those legal issues resolved with the help of a lawyer. There, there's huge opportunity, you know, both to improve access for that, that 77% of people that don't get representation, but also for the, the majority of lawyers that tell us that they want to do more work, both pro bono and otherwise. 
and have capacity for that. So it feels like there's a huge role for, for technology to play in, in connecting those, uh, those dots. Uh, Hank, this has been a, a phenomenal conversation. I really appreciate your perspective on, on these issues that are, are more important today than they've, they've ever been. Maybe to conclude, uh, in your column you said, for a profession dedicated to equal justice under the law, lawyers cannot accept a status quo where justice is rationed for the financially disadvantaged. Can you tell us what a more just system looks like to you? And, and how, when we're looking at that system, how do we know that we've gotten it right? Well, at the most basic level, a system which does not ration justice is one that any person without regard to their ability to afford an attorney can access legal advice and counsel and that they can do it quickly and that they can get competent legal advice to help them deal with life crises. We currently don't have that for millions of millions of Americans. So in one sense, we will know when we have achieved the promised land. The promised land is where any person who has a legitimate legal problem requiring assistance, um, needs to have assistance, can get that assistance. And if they're not getting it through a legal aid society and they're not getting it through volunteer pro bono, we have to find new ways through technology, I believe, to get them that assistance. Um, that has always been an American aspiration, and the reason why the urgency to address this problem today, not yesterday, is because it is getting worse and worse. Now the middle class is finding it difficult, in many cases impossible, to get a will written, to get a lawyer who can counsel them with a dispute, who can provide all sorts of assistance on issues that lawyers are not currently providing that assistance through contingency fee arrangements like personal injury law. So, you know, that's what has to be done. That's what's going to be done because the right people in the right places, I believe with the authority to change the system, our state court system, our chief judge, our chief administrative judge in New York, and I know there are court leaders around the, the nation that understand the gravity of the problem and the need to address it promptly and well. That's a great note to end on. Thank you again for joining us today, Hank. I really enjoyed our conversation. Same here, Jack. Thank you. Love being here. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.